Yeah, good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the uh, CSA Security Leaders Podcast. If you've tuned in before, you know that we're interviewing security leaders all over the world in a variety of industries and verticals and, and companies, types, roles, and seeing kind of what their journey was that led to where they are today. So my guest today, I'm very excited to introduce a friend and a colleague and a very well-known security expert in the, in the world, Eric Cole. Dr. Eric Cole, please welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Derek. So we find ourselves with a little bit of extra home time when we're recording these sessions this week. I, I, I know craziness. I'm a big fan of always looking for the silver lining in it. And I tell you, take the health issues out of it. But, but I'm super excited because I've been so busy lately delivering on the business and doing keynotes and working with clients and executive awareness. I haven't really had time to work on the business and create product lines, strategic plan, and things like that. So the fact that everything's been canceled and I'm home now for two months, I'm now just going total strategic, just flip the tactical, the strategic. And just this week alone, I got so much more clarity on my business and where we're going. So I'm looking at it, hey, let's make the best out of it. And after two months, my business is going to be so much stronger because I'm now going to have a clear plan and a clear strategy, which I didn't have before because I was too busy. You know what? I feel the same way. It, it's easy to focus on the challenge part of this, but I think it's a true statement to say there are some silver linings. And we've decided, my family, to look for those, right? You know, it's like, okay, what are the silver linings? That's a positive source of energy and get something positive out of this crazy circumstance we're in. Well, let's talk a little bit of the every superhero has a backstory. So let's get your backstory. You know, where did Eric Cole begin? I tell you, it's one of those that I always tell people, listen to your heart at the end of the day, because I'd like to think it was well thought out, but it was really just a lot of coincidences and a lot of good luck. So I still remember I was back at New York Tech in Old Westbury, uh, New York, Long Island, and I'm in the computer science class. And remember, this is in the late 80s, and I've taken Fortran and all this stuff, and I'm like, is this really what I want to do for a living? Is this really what a computer scientist does? So I was thinking about to go down to the co-op office. It was about a 20-minute walk on the other side of campus. And I was thinking about it for a while. Just for some reason, something told me on that particular Wednesday, do it. And it was almost like I was in a trance. And I went right after class. I walked down there and still wasn't sure why. And I walk in the office and go, Eric, it's so funny you came right now because the CIA is recruiting tomorrow on campus. And we have one slot left. And they only come once every two years. So if I would have went two days later, three days later, if I didn't listen to that voice, it would have never happened. So I interviewed with the CIA. It went well. I got the packet. And then the second interesting piece was after I got through the clearances and they flew me down to decide which office I want to work in, I was interviewing with the Network Operations Center, a programming department, a networking department, and this little department called cybersecurity. And it's funny because everyone told me Oh, no, 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 no. Cybersecurity is a fad. Don't do cybersecurity. It's all about networking. It's all, and you can see I don't follow directions very well. So I'm like, I'm doing security. You mean they're going to pay me to break stuff? So that was sort of second big pivotal moment. And then the third one that really changed everything is if you've ever seen CIA headquarters, they have what they call the bubble. It's a big auditorium that fits about 2000 people. And we had an all hands meeting. And I'm sitting in this meeting and the executives are talking about how we're going to be migrating from radio frequency to internet and all these things. And I was young and stupid. So I raised my hand. I'm like, I have a question. And my boss looks back and she's like, 
put your hand down. Like, don't ask questions. And I'm waving to her because I thought she's waving. And I asked a simple question that changed my life. And it was this. How do we know these systems are secure? How do we know they're protected and locked down if we're putting them on the Internet? And the execs sort of look at each other and they take some notes and they're like, Eric, thank you for volunteering to solve it. So I start this mission and we all know there's no way to prove a system is secure. The only way you could prove it's secure is by breaking in. So I essentially became a professional hacker for the CIA for eight years and learned how how to break into any system, anywhere, any place. And nothing against people who do pen testing or offensive work, but after doing it for eight years and breaking into some of the biggest, most sensitive systems in the world, I got bored because it's too easy. You can always find a vulnerability. There's always a way in. And I sat there and said, you know something? What if I went to defense? What if I switched gears and I did the harder job, which is defense? Because as we all know, to defend the system, you have to find all the vulnerabilities, which is almost impossible. And it's a much, much harder job. So from there, I switched and left the agency. And then I started my dual track of entrepreneur and cybersecurity. And then I bought and sold a few companies, worked at some big places like Lockheed Martin and McAfee, and now I'm back at it again with my own company, Secure Anchor. Well, there's your story arc. So let's go at the you know the beginning of that. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I guess I've been in Virginia for a while, so my accent has toned a little, and I'll try not to curse on the show. But uh, I'm born and raised in Long Island, New York. Right. The easiest way to think about it is if you look at a map of Long Island, in the center, you're going to see a little blue dot, and that little blue dot is called Lake Ronkakama, and that's my hometown. It was great. Pretty much meant from March till November, I was getting up at 5 a.m., going to the beach and surfing before school, and then depending on how good the waves were, I either showed up in my wetsuit or I actually went home and showered. So we grew up on Long Island. That's the one thing I miss in Virginia is not having the ocean nearby. I mean, it's just so therapeutic. Oh, I'm with you there. Moving from California to uh, to Georgia some years ago, I do miss the ocean as well. Uh, even though getting in the ocean in the San Francisco Bay Area was not not a frequent occurrence due to the <laughs> for a little more temperate climates. I'm curious where technology um, in your formative years is technology playing a part yet, or that's not till till after graduation of high school. Now, I always loved technology. So, so I was that kid that saved up all his birthday and Christmas money. And my, my parents drive around to find the Commodore 64 uh, when it first came out. And, and it was even before the Commodore 128, right? 164. So I, I was always technology, but it was always from a programming and functioning perspective. Like I never was into the gaming seat. Like I had friends who had the Ataris and all those. And that didn't interest yeah. me because I'm like, wait, the, the game is what somebody else wrote. I want to write the games. I want to write the programs. So I was always interested on that programming side. I took programming courses in junior high, which once again is basic. I I think our final project was to be able to add three plus five, like woohoo, like big, big, but this was in the mid eighties, right? So 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 to always love the tech and how it worked. And I was always fascinated with things. So originally when I was 15, I was thinking I was going to major in architecture because I just am amazed of how buildings and bridges and, and structures can just withstand the winds and the storm. I mean, it's just an amazing thing to me. But a friend of the family said, Eric, you love these computers and you love the technology. Why don't you major in this new field called computer science? And if you know how to program computers, you can do anything. And I'm like, 
that actually sounds like pretty good advice. And yeah. I'll have to look back and say, it actually is really good advice. So, so I went the computer science route and totally loved it. Yeah, that is, that turns out to be uh, excellent advice. If you go <laughs> unravel all the, all the years since you heard those, uh, heard those words. So uh, technology, uh, early introduction to it, college you study, what are you studying? Uh, computer science with a minor in business. And do you go right into additional graduate work or then you take the first job with the CIA first? So what I actually did is I did one year of school as a freshman. And then my remaining three years, I did nine months as an intern with the CIA. And then I doubled up and did 24 credits in the fall. So I was essentially taking a full semester, but doing it in, in one semester instead of two. So I still graduated in four years, but I actually, when I graduated with my bachelor's, I already had, what is that, 9, 18, 27 months of work experience at the CIA. I, I graduate and I'm ready to go work for the CIA. And you probably don't remember, but that's when they had a hiring freeze. So the, the government had, had a total lockdown, hiring freeze, no hiring of any form that they wanted to go in and reduce the government and all that. So I'm sitting there going, great. What do I do now? And, and once again, I'm a firm believer. If you stay positive, you help people, things work out. So I go down to the department chair at New York Tech and I'm like, Dr. Wang, I need some help here. I mean, what are we going to do? And he's like, Eric, a couple things. First, why don't you teach a course? So that got me my love for teaching, which I now do now. So, so he had me teach a couple of courses to, to be able to cover. And he goes, Computer Associates just opened their world headquarters on Long Island, and they're running a contest with all colleges where they want to give the Grace Hopper Award to one graduate. And so I didn't know what it was, but I'm like, okay, it's an award. I'll see what it is. So I, I go and I do all the interviews and the programming challenges and all those factors and find out a couple months later that I won it. Now, the interesting thing that I didn't know about this award was it was you worked at Computer Associates during the day and they paid you full time. And then they paid for you to get your master's degree in the evening. And they also gave you computers, lab, all their software and everything else. So I'm sitting there going, okay, I wasn't really thinking I was going to do graduate school now. I was thinking I was going to do it later and have the government or somebody else pay for it. But I'm like, okay, I guess opportunity knocks. So then I ended up staying on Long Island. I'm always an overachiever. So I doubled up and got done in a year and a half with my master's, got experience working at Computer Associates, programming, working on their uni center. Then the government freeze opened up, and then I moved down uh, to Virginia and worked for the government for eight years. I want to touch on one thing there, because one, one of the goals of this series is to pull out things that our viewers, listeners can say, oh, I can maybe do that. You made a choice to work and do school at the same time. And that's a choice that people can make, right? And should I go all school? Should I go out and get work? You know, should I do one in front of the other? Should I take a break? You have a path, right? I mean, it, it's obviously worked well for you. Talk about that choice of working at the same time of going to school. And if you hadn't done that, you know, what do you think the effect? You think that's a material choice you made that, that really made a, a different outcome for you? And is that something that you would suggest, like this is something maybe people could emulate? Absolutely, because the bottom line is to be successful in life, you need to have real world experience and you need to also understand concepts and principles. School teaches you the concepts and principles. The real world teaches you how to apply it. And to me, if those are not done together, you lose value. 
Because that, that's to me one of the big problems I see with a lot of folks is they go to college and after two years, they don't really know what this means and they don't really understand how they're going to apply it. So they switch majors, they switch majors, they switch majors, and then they finally graduate and they end up never using that major because they never really got that experience. So I'm a big fan, whether it's what I did where you're working full time, whether it's part time, whether it's in the evening, but you do that parallel path. Like my son, he's at Purdue, you know, well, he's home now because of the Corona, but, but he is going to Purdue for business. And, and one thing I told him was, I'm like, buddy, you have two choices. You can either work during the day at college and get some experience and then go to school, or I, we're blessed enough that I, I can help him out so he doesn't need to do that. He said, or you can start a business in the evening. Now, the business doesn't have to make money. It can't lose money, but you need to sort of break even on that. I said, but you need to get some real world experience. So he goes to school during the day. And then in the evening for two or three hours, he's actually working with a few entrepreneurs on helping them build out their business plan. And what I noticed, which is amazing, he now enjoys his classes. The first semester, I didn't do that. And he was like, Dad, I don't like these classes. The professors are stupid. This isn't real world. And, and he wasn't really engaged. And in the second semester, he started getting a little down and frustrated, blah, blah, blah. But, but now that he's doing things in the evening, it's like, Dad, I can now see how this works. And I can see where to ask the questions and, and how to do that. Yeah, so I'm a big, big proponent at whatever level it is that when you're doing any schooling, and I believe schooling continues, I still read one to two hours a night. I, I still take courses. I still do all those things. But I think the way you get to that next level, it's got to be a parallel path of learning and working simultaneously. Now, the percents might shift over your lifetime, but I think that's a critical piece to always keep perspective. That's a great nugget. That's uh, I think that's a, a definite uh, um, nugget to mine out of our, our conversation that anybody could look at doing. The other one I, I want to pull out because I think it's important I glossed over it is people want to help you more than you realize. And we're afraid to ask people for help when they're really out there. Like I was terrified to go talk to my professor. It was my dad. My dad, when, when I came home and I'm like, okay, I got my degree. I'm, I'm very employable. I could get another job, but I really want to work at the CIA and they're not hiring now. So what do I do? He's like, go talk to the head of the department. I'm like, I can't go. This is not his problem, right? He, I already graduated. That's not his problem. He doesn't. And my dad's like, talk to him. And sure enough, I asked him for help and the doors opened up. So you would be amazed of people out there that you might be afraid to talk to, or you might think don't care about you. But if you ask for help, most people not only have contacts, but they want to help you and they're good folks. So don't be afraid to reach out and ask for help. I totally uh, love that theme. And I think it's yeah. uh, it fits with CSA's mission too of connecting people together. You know, we we're a global not for profit, and our goal is connecting individuals on lots of different levels. And mentorship's a, a great example. And there are so many people that have a great amount of experience in the space. You know, so many being a relative term. There's so larger number of people who want to gain the experience in the space. If we can create these opportunities, webcasts like this, I mean, lots of different ways that we think as an intermediary, we can help connect the people who have knowledge, experience, wisdom, and pass it on to just a huge number of people that do want and you know want to tackle this problem of uh, cybersecurity and specifically in our case to any kind of industrial or control related system. So people like you sharing their time and wisdom. But I, I think that mirrors my own life experience as well. People um, are afraid to sometimes approach people that they believe whatever, whether it's a professor or a security leader or or some sort of executive level position, 
that that's a, you know someone that I can't ask a question of or get mentorship from. And the truth is, yeah, you can't always, but you'd be surprised how many times you, you can. So I yeah. like that. And one of my favorite examples of that is I had a unique area in my business where I needed to diversify some of the assets and I needed to run multiple businesses under a single umbrella. And I said, okay, who is the best out there? And it was Richard Branson. So I actually reached out to him with a very specific question. So it wasn't just, hey, Richard, but I was like, hey, Richard, I know you've done Virgin and I'm in this challenge and this issue. And I kid you not, three days later, my phone rings and it's Richard Branson on the line. And he talks to me for 30 minutes, gives me some advice. And at the end, I asked him a simple question. I said, Richard, why did you take my call? And he goes, Eric, you would be amazed at how few people actually ask me really good questions. He goes, I get a ton of emails that fall into the category of stupid, of people just saying, Richard, can you give me some of your money? Can you be, you know, it's crazy stuff. But he goes, if I get a really good question that is well thought out, I will always answer people. So it's one of those that even somebody at the level of a Richard Branson still helps individuals like me if you have that well thought out question and you really want help and you want additional details. So it's amazing the resources we have available that we don't tap into. You know what? We did not script this or prepare this, but I also have had contact with Richard. I no wrote, way! Yeah. Uh, I wrote him a couple letters early on in my entrepreneurial career um, oh, that's when I was doing my first business in the early, you know, late, late 90s. I picked his book off a shelf, Virgin something or other. It was like, it was really about the record, you know, Virgin Records, yeah. the first company. And it was called Virgins because they were virgins in business and didn't know what they were doing. And, and uh, I was struggling at the time with my first company and I'm reading it and getting all inspired by it. And so I wrote him a letter and I got a response. A few years later, I wrote him a letter and got a response. I've done that three times. So you had um, similar. Okay, awesome. Yeah. That's very interesting. That, but but it's, a, it's, it's amazing. I mean, that, that right there, we didn't ever talk about that. And look at that. Not only is that a real thing. So I think that is a good theme for people listening to this is don't be afraid to reach out. And I think old school methods like letters are incredibly powerful now. You know, whereas an email is really tough, especially now where we are, you know, it's changed over the last 20 years. And so today, old retro things like, oh my God, an old school letter can get an amazing, uh, amazing effect. Now, just building on that, I tell everyone, if you don't have it, order some nice stationery. And one of my things is once a week, and I do it without fail. So every year I do 50, at least 52 letters, but every week I do a handwritten letter to someone in my life that either to thank them, reach out to them, just share some thoughts with them. And, and like you said, it's amazing the responses I get back from these people. It's the same exact content that I put in an email, but the fact that I took the time to handwrite it, put it in an envelope on nice stationery and mail it to them, totally different reception level. You know, we are on the same page. And I think this is another outcome, a good outcome of this call, considered sometimes by the softer skills you know, how do I move forward? And this is a lot of people at CSA do ask in meetings or in our online forums, you know, how do I move forward in my career? How do I become a security leader in my organization? Now we're talking about something that doesn't matter what profession you're in, these skills, the kind of thing you just talked about, those are powerful tools, right? For getting where you want to go. Yeah, exactly. Your kind of greatest challenge, something along the way, especially if it pertains to this career path that you're on and how you maybe overcame it, uh, what the story was, if there is something comes to mind like that. I'm pausing and I'm laughing because as an entrepreneur, I guess two things are coming to mind. One is I never look at them as challenges. I look at them as opportunities. But I guess my whole life is as an entrepreneur, you're always going to have challenges. I'll pick a recent one, and then if you want me to delve back deeper, I can. But, but probably one 
opportunity, but it really is a big challenge that I'm dealing with right now is the coronavirus. Because my business right now, and, and I'm not really stepping back thinking about it, but like I am on this call, but all of our work is on-site assessments. All of my work is keynotes, and I spend 85% of my time on an airplane. And at least for the foreseeable future, that's done. So I'm sort of sitting there going, okay, I need to reinvent myself and my business. And I've done it many times. So I'm actually excited about it. I'm not nervous, but this is a big challenge because at least for the next six months, a lot of my traditional streams of income are not going to be there and people aren't really buying those types of assessments. So this week, I've already sat down with my team and my South advisors and others and started saying, okay, what is the need? How can we provide the service? And what are some new offerings to sort of reinvent the company? Because I think that while we're going to get back to a little more normal state, we're never going to get back to where we were. So now the question is, how does cybersecurity fit within this new landscape that we call life? And how can I position my company to take advantage of that? Yeah, well, that is apropos. The timing of that, of course, is something that uh, so many people are, are asking themselves right now, you know, what, what do I do? And I think you're right. It's take a quick assessment of, uh, you know, take an assessment of all your inventory of your skills, inventory of your thing. You know, what are all the things I can do? What are the things going on in the market? You know, is any of this really lend itself to being virtual versus being, you know, in person? You know, I have a number of friends uh, in the entrepreneurial community. That's been my whole journey. It's been entrepreneurship. There's a few people that are like, you know, I'm working on this new idea, you know, and I'm not saying they're super excited about the loss of some of their primary business, but there's almost this positive note, which is like, this actually, let's say all this goes back to normal, put that aside, whether when or how that happens. This new thing I'm working might be end up being a, an amazing new thing. And so this inspiration is coming out of necessity, but it may be that this actually becomes a really important part of what I do. Even if my traditional uh, you know, business comes back, if you will, this new thing may be an awesome new, you know, new, new invention. And, and that is, you know, what is the saying about necessity is the the mother of, uh, of all inventions. Yeah. I would say sort of the theme, and I'll give another example of a challenge, but I would say the theme of most of my challenges in my life, because I am very good and in demand, is chasing money versus following my heart. Because that's always a challenge. So five years ago, I was in a very envious position at a company where I had multiple streams of income. I had reoccurring revenue, I had licenses, royalties, and for all perspective, it was really good money. It was very good, solid money, and I could have done that for 10 years, very safe, and retired at the lifestyle that I have now, which isn't a G6 lifestyle, but it's not a bad lifestyle either, but I had in my heart, I want to go to that next level. I really want to go in and be able to help a lot more people. I want to travel around the world to be able to teach and all those things. I honestly know for a fact I will have a G6. I'm going to get to those next levels. So I had to sit there and everyone I talked to was like, Eric, you have a family. You have kids going into colleges. You're making good money. Why would you walk away from that? And the problem was it was capped. There was no way it could make any more. It was going to be that set amount for the next 10 years. It was never, ever going to increase, and it could potentially have decreased. But I know I trust myself. I will always bet on myself. I, I always joke with my kids. They're like, Dad, why do you have so much confidence? I'm like, listen, if you're betting against me, you better get a refund. You better get your money back because I'm not losing. So I bet on myself and walked away 
from this very lucrative job where everybody said I was crazy and I was nuts. And the interesting thing is within three years, I was back to where I was. Now I'm making more than I was. And I'm on track now to actually get to those higher levels that I really wanted. So, so my big thing is you're going to run into a lot of challenges in life where people are going to want to throw money at you and your family is going to want to protect you and keep you safe and say, go for the safe job, go for the safe money. Don't take risks, don't take challenges. But to me, life's about taking chances. Life's about getting cut up and life's about jumping and following your dreams and not playing it safe. You know, for a career entrepreneur, I love everything. <laughs> I love everything about about that. <laughs> yeah. um, you, you can relate because you, you. I, I know we've talked a lot, and you've been in similar cases where do you play yeah. the safe card or do you play the crazy card? <laughs> and there's always people around you, like, oh my god, play the safe card, play the safe card. Can't do it, not in the DNA. <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about just your introduction, especially for CSA community members. Where does anything industrial come into? You know, your your early cybersecurity sounds like probably is it's got to do with control systems or industrial control systems, whatever you want to call it, operating technology. But somewhere along the way, I know your journey does expose you to that area as well. Right. So, so it hits on a few fronts. So one of the fronts was probably I'm not good with years, so I, I could be wrong, but I think it was about seven or eight years ago, I got called up by NRC the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. They are responsible for all non-weapon-grade nuclear reactors in the United States. All of their protections and controls prior to eight years ago were all physical. They were all physical-based and everything else. What was happening eight years ago is all of those CDAs, critical digital assets, were now starting to be connected to other networks, connected to the internet, and starting to have challenges and issues. So they researched cybersecurity experts. And I was at the top of their list. So so they called me in and I worked with them. I went to several uh, reactors and then really started saying, okay, here are the critical things. And then I worked with the industry. And I actually am one of the authors of the cyber regulation for how to protect, secure, and lock down those nuclear reactors. So from there, because I'm the guy that helped co-author it and write that, all of a sudden, Every utility company that has a reactor wanted me to come in and consult and help them on that front. So that was one stream that I was brought in. And then the second one was I am very good at teaching and working with executives. So I was brought in to Saudi Aramco because they wanted to launch a huge executive awareness program. And I started training all their executives, their top 600, including the CEO. And in doing that, you have to understand their business and how to apply it. So that also got me more involved on the oil and gas side. But but the thing I will tell you, and some people when I say this get mad at me, so hopefully the people listening won't get too upset. But to me, if you really get down to a fundamental level, cybersecurity is cybersecurity. It's about understanding the critical assets, understanding the data flows and interconnectivity, and coming up with ways to allow the functionality in a way that enables the business and doesn't actually hurt the business. So while yes, in industrial control, oil and gas and nuclear, there's unique components and unique entities and unique uh, pieces to that, really the general strategies that I've developed over my 30 years were able to very quickly apply to any of those new areas or new fields. You're right, that is an area of great debate, right? (laughs) 
you you very deftly uh, touched on that uh, that area. Yeah, the, the, the concept of can we port over everything from traditional IT cybersecurity to the industrial environment? And I know you know the nuances of that. Yes. Uh, but you're saying that largely that some of the strategies level practice and principles, there may be some application or particular technology, active scanning or whatever that we don't do. But you're saying that the strategic stuff and really the big picture architecture is there's a lot of overlap. Exactly. And it's really about, as you said, understanding the critical data, the functionality and the data flows. To me, that has to be the center of the nucleus. And that's where I think people have got into trouble switching fields, because like you said, the one you bring up, which I could give you a million horror stories on, is active scanning. Active scanning, if you're on an internet-based environment or most corporate environments, active scanning is very normal and uh, very commonplace. But in industrial control systems, anything like that, it could be detrimental because the devices were never built to function in that manner. But when I went in, and I'll use uh, NRC, I went and said, okay, let's understand the critical data and how these devices function and work in the PLCs and all those components. And the first thing I noticed immediately was these are very simplified devices that are meant for high availability and stable environments. They didn't have a lot of complexity because the more complexity, the more code, the more things that can go wrong, which immediately I honed in, they don't have error checking. They don't have filtering. They don't have all those components a traditional operating system has. So it immediately hit me that if you start sending them packets or data or information that's not normal, they're not going to know how to handle it. And they're just going to check out. Yeah, they're just going to tap out really quickly. But, yeah. but, but notice the strategy was I started off by understanding the functionality and the critical assets of how they work and operate, that I think is a very healthy, safe way to do it. The very unhealthy way is saying, okay, I know how to do a security assessment. I know how to do a pen test. I know how to do an analysis. So I'm going to take all my tools, all my techniques, and all my methodologies. I'm going to plug my computer into a network, and I'm going to start doing my thing. That, I think, is the very dangerous, dangerous mindset that all of my knowledge and expertise can apply. So I think it's the understanding how you go about it can apply, but the tactical components have to be rewritten. Tactical playbook, yeah. Great cheer. Yeah, I meant to ask you, do you happen to be an author of a book or, or two? Or three or four, or yes. Just a bit. <laughs> I have a few. Most of my career has been on the technical side. So most of my books, like Hackers Beware, Network Security Bible, Advanced Persistent Threat, Hiding in Plain Sight. Yeah, I know. I see. A, I, I saw a few of the colors back there. Those are all very technical focused. But one thing I did a year ago was I said, honestly, while technical people need some help, that's not the problem. If you look at most breaches, most issues, most problems, it's because a non-technical person in finance accounting or somewhere else, or your parent or your mom or your spouse clicked on a link or did something they're not supposed to, they don't really understand those challenges. So last year, I wrote a book, Online Danger, which is really meant for the masses. It's almost like a novel. I know this is way too much complimentary of me to even compare it to this because I love the Alchemist book. I mean, to me, it's one of my favorite, but it's sort of that style where it's more like a novel written on a journey, but it ties in all the key principles of cybersecurity into it. So it's a fun, easy read cool. where people can really understand what the actual dangers are. Oh, I love it. I love yeah. it. I don't have that one in my collection. I'll have to, I'll have to work on that. Find books are my thing. 
let's go back and tell back on this career path kind of concept. What are a couple of things you would go back if you could transport yourself back to early Eric Cole? What would you tell yourself now about that would inform or affect your career choices, career path, where you are today? You know, obviously a lot of things have worked out. And so it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, I wish I'd said this, but there's got to be something maybe you would share with a younger version of yourself. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so a couple of things. First is I would have shared with my earlier self. Read, 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 read. It wasn't until probably the last 10 years that I really started reading as much as I do and, and really learning. And I wish if I could go back when I was 19, 20, living on my own, didn't have a lot to do in the evenings, that I would have asked myself to read and, and get, because there's so much knowledge out there. Second thing would have been to exercise and eat healthy. I had some health issues. I'm doing great now because I'm now on a strict regimen, supplements, things like that. But you can be the smartest person up here. But if this is not at an optimal level and you don't have energy throughout the day, you're not going to be able to go to your highest level. So you, you see some of these kids that are eating pizza and ice cream and can get away with it. I'd be like, start exercising, start eating well. Start. You, you can still enjoy life. But you, you want to make sure that you get that balance and you don't take care of your person. And then the, the third thing would be that it's okay to have confidence, but don't be an asshole. Because I, some, I think I'm a nice guy, but I'm sometimes very direct and, and very outspoken, especially in nonverbal email and text messages. I, I'm very so, so I would just sort of tell myself, listen, when you're starting to get into email and text and things like that, People on the other end don't know the emotions. They're not seeing your face. They don't know if you're laughing or you're happy. Just imagine if you received that email. Imagine if you got that from your boss. Just put yourself in the other person's position and really be very aware of how you're coming across to folks. Because I will tell you, pissing somebody off and having them think you're an a-hole, they are never going to work as hard for you as if they like you you're an ally and they think you're a nice guy. So I would just say, be very aware of your communication style because how you think you are and how people are perceiving you is not always the same. Well, that is awesome advice. Again, applicable in the grandest scale to no matter yeah. what uh, industry or profession you choose to do, but it does apply to this career path. There's no question. Those are all super takeaways. Again, I just want to say thank you, Eric, for being on the show and for uh, sharing your story and some of your collected wisdoms along the way. Really, really appreciate it. And I hope people enjoyed as much as I have. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.